Amen. All right, so as we're in, uh, we're in John chapter 9, and uh, we, Pastor Brian and I have a little competition. We try to keep the pages to front and back, and I did not accomplish that mission this week. But it's only because I put the Scripture on there for you, so I gave you some extra Scripture. All right, so uh, yeah, so we'll be in John 9. So John leaves us in chapter 8, and the story is, uh, you know, from chapter 7, I believe it's in verse 51, it's the story of where Jesus encounters the woman who is caught in adultery, okay? And so Jesus has this conversation uh, with both the Pharisees who called her in adultery, and, you know, just think about what that means to be caught in that, and then uh, they bring her to Jesus. And so we don't have a lot of description of details about the scenario, uh, but we know this, that the lady was caught in sin. She was brought to Jesus. Uh, the condemnation and the penalty for her sin uh, was to be stoned. And so they come to Jesus and say, all right, what should we do? And so this is where John leaves us here as we get out of chapter 8 uh, in what happened in the beginning of chapter 8. And it says in chapter 8, verse 7, as they continued to ask him, which is Jesus, uh, you know, what should we do? What should we do? He stood up and said, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And so Jesus says, okay, guys, if that's what the law says, then whoever around you uh, is perfect, get after it, right? Go ahead, toss the first stone. Okay, we know the story. And so Jesus then in verse 12, a few verses later, we know they, of course, do not. And they begin to one-on-one, one-by-one walk away. And Jesus said this. He says, I am, this is verse 12 in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what Jesus does in this moment is that he exposes this woman to the reality of a Savior right? He says, I am the light of the world. And so for the first time in her life, in the midst of her sin, which is fascinating, Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. Now you get on into John and John chapter 10, Jesus talks about, uh, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. And so he goes through all the I am statements, but he begins here in chapter eight by saying, I am the light of the world. And so the first blank here on your handout tonight is the mission of, of Christ was not to make our life better, but it was to reconcile us with God from our sin, right? That God didn't come to say, uh, he didn't send Jesus to say, all right, uh, everyone who follows me now will double their salary or everyone will be more comfortable or everyone will get what they want. That's a lot of the theology of the world today, right? Is that if you believe that you receive and that you would get whatever it is that you desire, if you're not getting it, you don't have enough faith, the, the prosperity gospel, right? But Jesus, Jesus didn't come for that. He didn't come to do that. He came to reconcile us to God. You see, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That is separation from God. And so because of our sin, we've been separated from God. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about that we now have peace with God because of this reconciliation on the part of Jesus, right? That Jesus bridged the gap for us as believers. We all know this, that Jesus bridged the gap. 
And so now we have peace with God because of what Jesus did. And so this reconciliation is what Jesus is revealing himself as to this woman who was caught in adultery. Now you fill in the blank with the sin. It's the simple fact that someone was in sin, the Savior of the world who bridged the gap or reconciled us to God shows up and reveals himself to her. Now, this stokes quite the conversation, as you would imagine, amongst the local Pharisees, right? Now, wait a minute. How, how are you saying that, you know, she can sin and we can throw stones at her, but then we can't because we're not perfect? You know, how does all this work? And so they began to have this conversation, and eventually they decide, well, there's no way he can be right, and so they resort to violence. And so the Bible says that they attempt to stone Jesus. Now, in the greatest act of God, which is, of course, forgiveness, Jesus not only forgave her sin, okay, John 8, 11, Jesus said right before he revealed himself to being the light of the world, he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. What he told her was what he tells you and me is that your sin is not counted against you because of Jesus. Amen? That's reconciliation. That's Jesus reconciling us to the relationship that was fractured in the garden for humanity. And so he says, hey, I don't condemn you. Remember, Jesus didn't come that we would have comfort. He came that we would have salvation. And so what does he do? He took her place for the penalty of sin. How do we know that? Because look what the Bible, this is fascinating. Look what the Bible says. It says, as they attempted to do that, Jesus took her place. How do we know that? Because remember, she's supposed to be stoned. But Jesus said, if any of you guys are perfect, toss the first one. No one did. They walked away. So the penalty for her action was stoning. The penalty for our action is what? It's separation from God. The wages of sin is separation from God. It's death. But look what John eight fifty nine says. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Look at that. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Is that not fascinating that in the beginning of the chapter, sin deserved punishment? And Jesus stepped in and said, I do not condemn you, but yet he steps in and says, I am the light of the world. And he who walks with me will no longer be in darkness. And at the end of the chapter, the stoning from which, the, uh, according to law, said she deserved, he was the one who they were trying to pursue for the stoning. That's fascinating. And so we have Jesus here standing in the place of this woman. You see, interwoven all throughout Scripture and into our daily lives of both you and me is what? It is a God who works in us, who works through us, and who works for us. You see, Jesus' focus was always on who we are, but man's focus is always on what we've done. 
And see, we'll see tonight in John chapter 9, the Pharisees were the same way there. They were the same way with the woman. The the fact of the matter is that every one of us are sinners, right? And that every day the trap is set for you and I to be caught in the trap of sin. But because of Jesus, and specifically because of eyes to see, which we'll really dig into tonight, because of that, we're able to pursue a God who loves us in spite of the reality that we don't deserve that relationship. And so Jesus' focus was on who the woman was. God's focus for you and for me is who we are. It is not the things that we have done or that we have not done. It is not based on our performance. You see, in in order for us to operate from who we are, we have to be able to see things clearly. And unfortunately, most people don't. And so what Jesus is about to do is he is about to give us the clearest illustration of why people do not see. You see, this applies as much today as it did the very second these words came out of Jesus' mouth. And so we pick up here in John chapter 9. And so after all that has transpired in John chapter 8, in John chapter 9, it says that they passed by and there was a man who was blind from birth. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the pool at Siloam, uh, or I'm sorry, Beth- Bethsaida. And uh, we saw how Jesus came in and the man was uh, lame and had been lame for a long time. And Jesus healed him and he told him to take up his bed and walk. And because he did it on the Sabbath, uh, they were very upset about that. And so they began uh, to cause a big uproar about it. And we don't have a record of this lame man uh, pursuing Jesus, but we see a different story In John chapter 9, because if you'll remember, I referenced John chapter 9 in that message. You see, the disciples, as they walked by and saw this blind man, they began to ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which is the common belief in their day that it was, uh, you know, uh, deformities or deficiencies or disabilities or any of those things were a cause of your, your lack of faith or your inability to be or to do what God called you to do. And so Jesus answered. He says, well, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. See the, the often allusion to light and darkness? He says, light, uh, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, and here we see it again, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus encounters yet another person, as we again saw in John 5 as well, uh, greatly affected by the results of a fallen world. You see, we see that all around us. We see uh, the, the results or the consequences of a fallen world all around us. And it's not because someone has sinned that they have those things, uh, you know, present in their life. And so Jesus is trying to be very clear about this. Um, I had a nephew uh, that was uh, a lack of oxygen when he was born. And so because of that, uh, he... Um, he, was, he had some deficiencies, and he was never able to see or to speak or uh, to, to function, really. And so he lived uh, a few years, and he, he grew really fast, uh, but his brain was uh, deprived of oxygen, and so he ended up passing away. And when I preached his funeral, I remember using this scripture 
to talk about the way that God uses things in our life that sometimes we don't understand, sometimes that we wish maybe were even different, uh, but that God uses those things, that they can be things to show us who God is. You see, as we encounter the, the consequences of a fallen world, oftentimes we take it as a sense of condemnation. But sin was never meant to condemn, only to distract and to derail. You see, accusations were not first cast in the garden, right? Questions were cast in the garden. The enemy didn't accuse Adam and Eve of anything because Adam and Eve were built and created uh, to exist in perfection with their heavenly Father, right? But what happened is because of sin, they were uh, banished from the garden, and so they were removed from the presence of God because of that sin. But you see, sin, uh, what, what sin was meant to do in the case of Adam and Eve was to derail us, to distract us from uh, the pursuit of who God really is. And if you think about those things in your own life, that's why Jesus comes in and he, he realigns us to see who God the Father really is. And so he helps to set our sights back on who God is. And so in that process, what happens for you and me is that in this derailment that Jesus comes back and realigns us, it is not that we would be condemned because what Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen, Right? And so because of that, it is just meant to distract. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, there are some people that are close to my circle that are going through a few things, and, and they've really been pursuing God, and God's been opening doors of opportunity for them. And guess what has happened in their life? They've had a lot of trouble, right? I mean, we were reading in D Group just a few days ago that Paul says, a door of opportunity has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. To which none of us would say that. Think about it. What do we say when things work out? Well, God opened the door. Right? Don't we say that? That everything worked out. God must have opened the door for me. But yet Paul says the opposite. That he says, hey, God has opened many doors of opportunity and there are many adversaries. You see, in your life, if you aren't seeing what God is calling you to see, if you're not peering into the light of who Jesus is and what he's called you to be in your life, guess what you're going to do? You're going to, uh, to be in darkness, and you're not going to see the things that God wants you to see, which means what? You're going to miss those things, which is a distraction or a derailment in the things that God intends for you and I to pursue. And so they look at this man, not as someone created in the image of God, not as someone who could be made whole by Jesus. They've seen the miracles, but they see this guy as someone who's sinned. They see the man for his sin. And unfortunately, often we're seen for our sin and or we see others for their sin. And yet we know that Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who are lost, not to condemn right? And so we see here that this man is in this condition and the disciples are trying to figure out, hey, what's going on? You see, it was meant not to condemn him, but to distract him. Romans six fourteen for sin will uh, have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so just as it was with the lame man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5, Jesus does what? He chooses to focus on this one person amongst many. 
You see, in these scenarios, what we've seen in most of these is that Jesus is very intentional with one-on-one. Right? It would be very easy for Jesus to say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, all you and your friends are saved. Because what did Nicodemus say? He said, we, plural, perceive that you're a good prophet. Right? And Jesus said what? You, singular, you must be born again. And so what Jesus did is he zeroed in. The same thing with the lame man. He was not the only one there, right? Remember he said, when the waters are stirred, we all try to go down, and I never can make it because someone else beats me there. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't walk in and say, okay, everyone here is forgiven, or everyone here is healed. But he goes intentionally to that man. He goes intentionally to this blind man. What does that mean for you and for me? Well, I'll tell you what it means for Matt. It means that early in the morning when I get up and spend time with the Lord, that I'm not saying, God, would you just listen to me? God, as you're attending to the millions and billions of people on earth, God, would you just give me five seconds? But it means that I know that my heavenly Father loves Matt, that God loves me, and that God is intent on spending time with me. And he's got all the time in the world because he's not constrained by the clock. And so I don't have to wonder that God loves, you know, 125 of us, and maybe one day he'll give me a morsel, but that God loves me, and he'll spend as much time with me as I'm willing to spend with him. Amen? And so Jesus looks at this man that is born blind, and he goes right to him. The one that everyone else says, oh, well, he's blind, let's just be quiet and get by, or the one that says, oh, it must be because something that he or someone in his family did. But Jesus goes directly to him. You see, it was common back then, and unfortunately, I would say today, that some people believe that your lack of faith is the reason for your health problems or physical disabilities. That, in fact, is 100% false. You see, people try to explain the problems of sin or to explain how darkness works. It's fascinating to me and discouraging all at the same time of the uh, fascination, I guess you would say, uh, that some believers have with darkness. Right? Why is that? Why, I mean, why is that? Why are, why are we so enamored with darkness? Why are we so enamored with evil? You see... We, we think about this situation and we think about this darkness. And, and so for us, it is not the fact, you know, well, you know, what, am I, what do I mean by that? And, you know, Pastor Tony's preached a couple times in this series about people uh, being influenced by evil or being possessed by evil. And so a lot of times people pursue information about that. And they, they want to know as much as they can or, you know, expose themselves to watching movies and stuff like that, which I think is utterly ridiculous. But, look, my job is not to explain to you how darkness works. As a believer, my responsibility is not to become an expert on darkness. I don't want to know any more about darkness than I need to know or I, or I have to know. You know what I want to know more about? I want to know more about the light, right? I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about the one who overcomes the darkness. I don't need to know any more about darkness than my flesh wants to know about darkness, right? I want to know more about the light, And so for us, we shouldn't be trying to explain darkness or try to understand darkness. We ought to be trying to explain Jesus, and we ought to be understanding light through Jesus. Amen? You see, we must be committed to giving more time in restoring sight and advancing the kingdom than in explaining blindness. Right? 
We ought to be focused on the light of the world, that the hope that Jesus brings to us is available to anyone. If you're at Dollar General or Walmart or Home Depot or wherever you may find yourself, darkness never wins. But yet often we cower and run because, oh, there's darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Not I am the light of this zip code or I'm the light of this state or I'm the light of this country. The world, the globe, the one that he created. And so Jesus is very clear here. Jesus is very clear. All things, this is so good, all things may be subject to a fallen world. All things may be subject to a fallen world, but all things are also subject to a risen kingdom. Right? And so in your life, there may be, you know, as Paul talked about and coined the, ter- uh, the term, the uh, uh, thorn in the flesh, you may have something that drags you down. You may have a, a sin, as the Bible says, that so easily besets you or traps you or trips you up. But here's the deal. You are more subject to a risen kingdom than you are to your fallen nature. Because greater is you who lives in you, greater is he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. So you have access to the most lumens that the world could ever imagine. That was a light reference, by the way, if you're not familiar with that. Right? So we have access to this through God the Father. And so this fallen world in which we find ourselves in and subjected to sometimes and even exposed to the things that happen even affect our own lives that may distract or derail us are still subjected, this is so fun to say, to the risen King Jesus. Right? And so here's Jesus encountering this blind man, which is no problem whatsoever for the Son of God. You see, it all depends on the perspective of which you see things. Darkness can be real scary when you're not familiar with the light. Right? Darkness can be very overwhelming when you haven't spent time in the light, when you don't know what the light is like. I mean, think about it when you're a kid and you're terrified because you're in the dark and I'm afraid of the dark or I don't know what's behind the closet, right? But then you're an adult and you say, well, you know, it's just like on that movie, you know, uh, what was it, uh, Major Pain or something? He says, well, if somebody's in there, he ain't happy, right? Because adults, we know that, hey, whatever I encounter, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle this, right? And so in our own lives, what we ought to say is that, hey, I'm pursuing light because light overcomes darkness, Jesus, again, restates the fact at the end here that he is the light of the world. So in verse 6, this is what he says. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but at uh, Ulta Beauty, you can actually go in there and buy uh, Jesus saliva that actually cures all types of ailments. I mean, it might as well be. I'm sure someone's tried to market that before, right? That we would say, oh, well, look, if you just take some mud and spit in it and rub it together and pray in the name of Jesus, then you can do anything, right? And so, you know, here's this story. Now, why did Jesus do it this way? Did he have to spit in the mud? No, of course he didn't. What is the significance of that? I'm not really sure. The guy couldn't see. Um, But, you know, this is what the Bible says, that he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Did he do that to the lame man? No, he did not. 
Did he touch his legs so that he would be healed? No, he did not. Did he touch the woman who was uh, healed with the issue of blood or the little girl that Pastor Brian preached about or the guy that uh, Pastor Tony preached about? No, he did not. Could he? Yes. Did he sometimes? Yes. Did he have to? No, because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. And so he chose to do what he did here. And he said to the man who was blind, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now there is a lot packed into he went and washed and came back seeing. I mean, just envision this with me for just a second, all right? So he tells someone who's blind to walk half a mile from the Temple Mount, that elevation declines, and wash in the pool and come back. Think about that for just a second. If we're in this room and I tell you, go to the East Sanctuary and wash your hands in the, you know, in the bathroom and come back, and then you'll be able to see, how are you going to find your way over there? All right, just, I mean, think about what's happening here. Jesus spit in the mud, he rubs it on his eyes, and he tells a blind person, go walk half a mile and wash and come back, and then you'll be able to see. But he does. He does. And so let's unpack that a little bit. So the pool of Siloam, like I said, was about a half mile away. So he had to navigate down a hill through the crowded streets to the water, all the while... He had mud on his face, right? People who've seen him before. Um, hey, uh, you have some, something on your face, right? I mean, imagine what all, all this went down. But he does it. God puts mud on it. Jesus puts mud on his face, and he bebops down to the pool. And so then think about the people at the pool. Like, hey, bro, you're not getting in with that mud on your face. You're going to have to get that off where you get in, right? You're not getting in the pool with mud. But he gets in the pool, he washes his face, and he comes back. And the Bible says that he came back seeing. You see, Jesus involved the man in the miracle. He involved the man in the miracle. There is always activity in the miracles of God. Always activity in the miracles of God. Jesus is always working. I was talking to somebody this week and we were talking about a situation of Jesus at work and we were talking about the reality that God is working in many different areas of that situation. That he's moving in many different parts of that situation. You see, Jesus is always working and guess what he's doing in that work? He is inviting others to be a part of that work as well. You see, tonight, you know what Jesus is doing to you and to me? He's inviting us to be a part of what he is a part of. He's inviting us to be a part of the things that he's doing. He's inviting us to be a part of the activity and the miracles that he is working out. Think about what we've talked about so far. And then this is just a few. Think about the water into wine. What did he say? Hey, guys, close your eyes. I'm about to do something really awesome. No, he said what? Fill the pots. So there was work. They had to get some stuff done to get it ready. And then he uh, turned the water into wine. How about the disciples uh, passing out all the food? Pastor Tony talked about that uh, in John chapter 6 with the lad and the fish and bread. What did he say? Gather everything you have. And so they gather everything. And then all of a sudden, Jesus expanded all that they had. But they were involved in that. Okay? Right? How about the uh, lame man? Jesus said what? He says, all right, turn around, walk seven steps, and then you'll instantly be healed. That's not what he said. He asked him the question, do you want to be involved? He said, do you want to be well? And so what was the man's involvement? His involvement was the recognition that he desired things to be better. 
You see, for all of us, when we're exposed to light, what happens is our desire to be better becomes known. You see, for all of us in our life, the Bible says that no one seeks after righteousness, Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. So none of us woke up one day and said, you know what, I want to be just like Jesus. No, what happened is the reality that the fact that you weren't like Jesus, that you weren't who God called you to be, became known to you because the light exposed that. And then what did God do? He revealed the fact that reconciliation was present and that you could be who Jesus called you to be if you would receive the reconciliation. Right? So he exposed that. And so it welled up inside of this man that there is something better than being lame for 38 years. And so if you got the answer to that, I want a piece of it. Right? And so it's the same thing here that we see with the blind man. Jesus said, let me put some mud on your face and go swimming for a few minutes, and you're going to come back with eyeballs. And he says, hey, I'm in. Let's do it. And so he goes off and does it, and he comes back with sight. God involved him. Jesus involved him in the activity. You see, there is no such thing as passivity in the pursuit of the kingdom. There's no such thing as passivity. If you think that following Jesus is sitting in a pew and listening to messages, then you have seriously misunderstood what the gospel says. You see, following Jesus is not just church attendance. Following Jesus is living out your faith day by day, revealing the light to the dark world in which we are exposed to every single day. That's what the gospel calls us to do, to be where God called you to be, to be the light where God called you to be the light. And there is no such thing as passivity in that. You can't sit and do nothing and expect to be pursuing because pursuit requires activity. You gotta be moving. You gotta be involved in the things that God is calling you to be involved in. You see, sometimes you say, well, look, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna do things. I wanna, I wanna go the, the places that God called me to go. I wanna be a part of the things that God called me to be a part of. But you don't understand God called me to do things that just really don't make any sense, right? We saw a great example of that. Well, God, um, I don't have any room for guys to crash at my place. doesn't make any sense. We, we see so many examples uh, of how God does that and can do that, but yet oftentimes and, and the average you know, person who claims faith in Jesus, let's put it that way, we say, well, I feel like this is what God may be calling me to do, but it just doesn't make sense. Or I don't know how it would ever work. I don't know how that's possible. And so instead of pursuing it, we resolve to passivity. And we replace it with our own ideologies and live a dull and boring life for the rest of our lives, never pursuing what God called us to do. You see, sometimes the things of God don't make sense. Sometimes God calls you to do things that are far beyond human reason, right? That he calls you to do things far beyond human reason. I was always taught if it can be explained by man, it was probably done by man, right? If it, but if it was unexplainable, God was probably involved in it. I mean, think about, as we're going to see with this blind man, think about the lame man. Think about their families. Now, wait a minute. Wait, you did what? He spit in your face, and now you're, I, this doesn't make any sense. You see, now the man has a choice. Jesus says, hey, put the mud on, go down and wash. 
And so he has the choice here. What does he do? Does he do it? Does he walk down past everybody, mud all over his face, doesn't make any sense? He's been to the pool before. I've heard of that pool, whatever it may be. Does he obey the one who, just, who he just heard say that he was the light of the world? Now think about it. Jesus and the disciples are walking by. They come up to this blind man. He's probably not very mobile, I would imagine. So, you know, he's probably sitting, and, uh, and so they come by, and they, they see him, and they have this conversation. Hey, this guy right here that's blind, Jesus, uh, is it because of his sin? So I imagine in my own mind that he hears them talking about that. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's not because of that. It's because God would be glorified. And then he said, I'm the light of the world, to which if I'm the blind man, I'm listening. Right? I'm paying attention. And so I think that's why he did whatever Jesus told him to do. Because he heard Jesus say, no, it's for my glory. It's for the glory of God. And he says, I am the light of the world. First person, Jesus is declaring the reality that he's the Messiah sent into the world to save those from sin. And so I imagine that he heard all of that. And when Jesus said, go to the pool, he's like, I'm out. And he goes straight to the pool. Right? And so he heard what Jesus said. So he had the chance to obey what he heard or to sit in his current situation for yet another day. A lot of people say, well, that's crazy. Who would do that? Well, a lot of people. Oh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe, maybe another Messiah will come by tomorrow. Maybe someone else will come by and declare that they're the Messiah tomorrow. Maybe someone else will come by tomorrow and give me another opportunity. Maybe someone else will come by tomorrow and have another good idea. We're all guilty of that. That God calls us to do things that don't make any sense. And our response is, maybe tomorrow. I'm not sure. Maybe next time. What did Paul write in, uh, in 1 Corinthians? That the promises of God are found in the yes and the yes, right? Because faith is what? It's the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Think about that, how that all parallels here. And so the Bible says that he went. Very simply, so he went. You see, no movement equals no miracle. No movement equals no miracle. He says, you know what? Um, I hear what you're saying. Um, I feel you doing something to my face, but I still don't see, and so I'm definitely not going down to the pool because this doesn't make any sense to me. But he moved. And in the movement, he received a miracle. You see, many people want God to work in their lives. Many people want God to move in their situations. Maybe they desperately need God to act in their life. They desperately need God to move in their situations. But here's the deal. They're not willing to move. They're not willing to move. When is the last time that you changed your theology because God revealed to you that you were wrong? Right? I mean, that's saying, hey, God, I'm willing to move. Or I'm going to stand behind a preference instead of a principle. How many churches have been split over preference instead of principle, right? We, we used to sing growing up, I'm standing on the promises, but in reality, we, we really meant I'm standing on my preferences instead of on the promises or the principles of God the Father. 
And so here we see that people aren't willing to move, find themselves in the same situation year over year that they were on the year before because no movement equals no miracle. Just like the lame man we saw a few weeks ago, their calamity has become their identity. The lame man was so comfortable being lame that he didn't want to change. He didn't want to change. He was full of excuses. But the kingdom of God is always marked by action. You see, Henry Blackaby says it this way. He says, find out where God's working and go join him. Find out where God's working and go join him. And so if you want the activity of God in your life, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you say, hey, I want in. I I want to be what God wants me to be. I want to hear what God is saying to me. I want to be more a part of the light. Well, look around. And see, where is God working? Where is God working? Where is God working? I want to be a part of wherever God is working. And implement yourself into service for the kingdom. And guess what's going to happen? God's going to begin to use you in your life. God's going to begin to expose you to things that you never imagined possible. Because why? Because movement equals activity of God. And so in John 9, pick up in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. And he received his sight. So they called word, hey, this blind man was healed. And uh, they weren't real happy about it. And so they called the parents of this man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is your son, is this your son who was born, who you say was born blind? See how all these accusations in here, who you say? How then does he now see? I mean, really, are we really asking this question? And he asked, uh, and his parents says, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Well, we're just sticking to the facts here, aren't we? But now he, but how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. I have some comments about that in just a minute. I want to say it now, but I'm going to wait. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ, Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now think about this. Think about this. Really, think about this. And don't, don't miss what just happened. This, th- this is their little boy. This is their little boy who was born blind. Okay? He could not see which translation is they did almost everything for him. Right? They were showing him things. You know, they were showing him how to use his motor skills. They, they weren't. Nothing was visual for him. And most of his learning was auditory. Right? Maybe they moved, you know, his hands into motions for certain things. They taught him how to walk. They, I mean, clearly he went down to the pool. Uh, They taught him everything that he knew. He was blind, okay? I told you, uh, you know, about my family member that was born blind. and, And so everything that happened for Cameron was done for him. It was done for him. He, he didn't have the ability. Now, you know, with modern technology, there's, you know, certainly more progression. But this is Bible days, okay? They did everything for him. And yet, this is a man now. This is not a boy. The Bible says a man. And so here is this man who has now received his sight. He could see his parents for the very first time. He could do things on his own for the very first time. And yet, two things seem so glaringly odd to me about this story. 
I mean, think about it. Number one, why are they not with him? Right? Now, we're going to be down at Chuck E. Cheese celebrating like it's no tomorrow. I mean, think about it. All of the things that happened in his life up until now, we're really not going to Chuck E. Cheese, so if you don't like that, I don't either. It's all right. But all their life, I mean, they've been showing him all these wonderful things because he couldn't do them himself, and now he can see. Man, we are celebrating. We're all going swimming in the pool, right? I mean, I am excited that my child now is no longer constricted by the inability to see. And I'm like, hey, come over here. Look at the temple. Here's where I first met God. Look what happened. This is what happened when then, then this went on. And, this is, and look at this lame man over here. This guy right here, he couldn't walk for 38 years. He ran a marathon last week. And so they're showing him everything that he never had a chance to see. But they're not doing that. Oh, no, they're hiding They're cowering down in the darkness. Because why? Because they feared the Jews. So number one, why are they not with him? And number two, why are they not celebrating? Why are they not celebrating? I mean, think about in Luke 15 when the prodigal son ran off and he squandered all of his dad's things. So he ruined the inheritance. And yet when he turned and he came back, the Bible says that the father saw him far off. And what did he do? He took off running. Right, because that's what every one of us would do if we have a child that's astray or if we have a child that's struggling or we have a child that needs help, that we want to do everything in our power to help them and to do the best that we can so that they can be the best that they can be. Right? Can I get an amen from a parent in here tonight? Right? That's what we would do. We would want the best for our kids. You see, the reality is God entrusted your children to you for you to stand in the gap. Listen, to stand in the gap. Stop playing the blame game and saying someone else will raise your kids or someone else will share the gospel with your kids or someone else will be the example to your kids. God made you the example for your kids. God made you the one that would get on your knees for your kids every day. God made you the one that would stand in the gap and have influence over their life. Listen to me. Don't you pawn off your child's raising, even if they're an adult here. Don't you pawn it off and say the world will figure it out or God is sovereign. You say, God, what can I do to be involved in them knowing you and following you and being a part of what you have in store for them? Don't you miss the blessing of being a parent. Don't you miss the opportunity that God puts before you. This makes me mad when I read this. Can you tell? It makes me mad. God entrusted this boy to this family. God has entrusted us to lead our kids. And we better be serious about doing it. So for the second time, They called the man who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He said, look, you can say whatever you want to say. All I can tell you is I know what you look like now, right? You see, the Pharisees invoked the name of God to deny the work of God. We see that all the time today. We, we see people trying to blame God or give credit to sin, uh, you know, from God or misquoting Scripture, which is ridiculous. 
You see, what God's interested is God's interested in our good for his glory. You see, our greatest good is God's glory. And the greatest good for this man is that he was born blind and God rescued him from his physical disability so that he could heal him from his spiritual disability. You see, God's glory was this man's good. And so what happened for this young man, and it's the same for you and for me, is that our greatest struggle can turn out to be God's greatest work in our lives. Think about the stories that this man has to tell because of what God did in his life. And so in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, Because that's exactly what he did to you and me. He found us. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So we get to the point that Jesus was making, and what I believe is the main reason that this story is in the Bible, is that light not only illuminates, but it exposes, and it sometimes blinds people. It exposed the reality of what the Pharisees were really interested in, and that was control. They wanted to be in control. But it also exposed the reality of what this man needed. And it wasn't just physical help. It wasn't just physical help. You see, some of the Pharisees in verse 40, they were near him. They heard these things. And they said, are we also blind? I mean, that's, that, that seems like the silliest of questions. Uh, uh, well, Jesus... Um, You said that you're the light of the world and that you came uh, that those who do not see may see and those who are seeing may become blind. Are are we blind? So silly. And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so Jesus, what Jesus is doing here is he's unveiling the reality of what it means to actually see. You see, Paul says that the things that we see are temporary, but the things that we don't see, those things are eternal. And so these things that we see that are temporary often distract us, right? They derail us. They get us uh, off track of what God has called us to do. But the things that we don't see, that's where the activity of God is. And so what real sight is, is it's moving from unbelief to belief. And so belief is the foundation of sight. That we would say, hey, I can see now because I believe, not because I believe in just anything, but it's because I believe in what? That I believe in the Son of Man. Jesus asked him. He said, do you believe in what? He didn't say miracles. He didn't say uh, dirt with saliva in it. He didn't say good swimming water. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? So the foundation for sight tonight, if you say, hey, I want to see, 
Well, it's belief. That's the foundation. And I'm not just talking about saving faith. I'm also talking about working faith, that God is capable of doing something in your life because if, he's, if you trust him enough to save you, then you got to trust him enough to follow him. So real sight is moving from unbelief to belief. So we would ask the question tonight, how well do I see? That's the question I would want to know in this moment. Well, then how well do I see? Am I, am I seeing what God wants me to see? Well, the story reveals the fact that there is a blindness. <clears throat> there is a blindness <clears throat> that is far more common and far more disastrous than physical blindness. And that is spiritual blindness. It's far more disastrous. We've got a lot of people that are spiritually blind in our world today that are walking around, stumbling into things, going places they shouldn't go, being involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. Because why? Because they're blind. They're spiritually blind. Just like I mentioned earlier about exposing or pursuing things of evil. That is indicative of spiritual blindness. You see, spiritual blindness, by definition, is simply an inability to see the things of the Spirit. It's an inability to see the things of the Spirit. Paul talks about this a lot in Corinthians, but it's seeing God for who he is. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit of God, uh, it prays, the Spirit of God, he prays the things that we don't know that we need to pray, right? And so what the Spirit of God does is intercedes or intersects the things in our life and helps us and reveals things to us that God, in fact, would want us to see. And so as we think about this spiritual blindness, well, it's not an external condition. I can't, you know, you can't, I can't, we can't look around and say, oh, well, that person's spiritually blind or that person's spiritually blind. No, it's an internal condition. And it occurs, so here's the barometer. How well do I see? Well, spiritual blindness is when we focus our attention on ourselves. That we would say, well, you know, what, what is my pride? What is my desire? Or spiritual blindness can also be limited understanding. I would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, good, that's a great starting point for God to do something awesome. Or, well, I'm not sure how it's going to work out. Again, a great opportunity for you to have more faith and believe in what God can do in your life. You see, this is what John 3 said. So this is in the Nicodemus arena. A little bit after Nicodemus, he said, this is the judgment. The light, Jesus is talking here. The light has come into the world, which of course is Jesus. And people did what? They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so just like the parents, they're hiding, they're, they're hiding hiding from being exposed in the light by hiding in the darkness. Because why? Because they're comfortable there. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So spiritual blindness is the inability to see the Spirit of God working, but spiritual sight is what? It is moving towards the light. It is getting closer to who Jesus is. And here's the reality of that. Listen, the more that you spend time with the light, the more that you spend time with the Spirit of God and the Word of God, what happens? You begin to be exposed for who you are, right? 
I began to be exposed for who I am. The Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so what does that mean? It means that it divides my heart and it exposes me for who I am. And so when I can spiritually see, what I'm doing is I am receiving the truth from the word of God and I am responding to that, not in shame or condemnation, right? But in what? In conviction and in transformation, right? It begins to change me. It begins to transform me. And I'm not running away in shame. Because why? Because all of us sin. I'm not the only one who made a mistake. The devil may make me try to believe that that's true, but it's not true. The reality is every one of us are jacked up. And so I need to be transformed by conviction of the Word of God. So I'm doing what? I am moving towards the light. That's what Jesus said here. The works have been carried out because the truth comes to the light. So the blind are those whose sight that they say, well, you know, they trust themselves or they trust their own pride. But those who come to Jesus, they admit their helplessness. We admit our inability and we trust Jesus for salvation. Pastor Tony talked about this a couple weeks ago in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, if you remember. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown where in our hearts, for what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to see, is that the veil has been lifted. That you see Jesus for who he is and you see yourself for who you are and yet you still pursue the light. So a couple principles as we wrap up here. Spiritual blindness, I'm sorry, spiritual sight is an even greater gift than physical sight. Spiritual sight is an even greater gift than physical sight. Look, there's, there's things that all of us, you know, wish were different about ourselves physically maybe. But none of that matters at the end of the day. Right? This, this guy that was blind, he had been blind all his life. And he would say, hey, it matters. I can't see. And yet the greater good that happened in his life was not the fact that now he was able to, to see shapes and images and colors and all those things. It was the fact that he was able to see the Son of God. So the spiritual sight was the greatest gift that could happen to him. It is the gift from the light of the world. And how do we receive that? Well, we, received, we receive spiritual sight continually through time spent with Jesus. How do I know that? Well, this is what he said. When Jesus revealed himself to this man, what did he say? He said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. And in response to his belief, the Bible says, and he worshiped. He declared belief and responded with worship. So how did the blind man see Jesus? Well, to see Jesus is to live a life marked by belief and worship. 
So the walk away tonight, in a nutshell, how do I see with spiritual eyes? How do I see what it is that God wants me to see? Spend time in worship with the Word, and you will see. Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. And that is what the man is declaring before Jesus today, is I believe. And he worshiped in response to that. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made yourself known through.